This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello there, and thanks again for joining me once again. I'm Robbie Bergen, and you are listening to The Faith Experiment, and this is episode number 13. And I'm calling this episode Finding a Church. If you're joining me for the first time, The Faith Experiment is about putting faith into practice. And so far on the show, I've been sharing with you my own personal journey of how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. Now, if you've missed any of the previous episodes and you want to catch up on all of the details, go and get the Faith FM app from your app store or go to faithfm.com.au and look under the podcast section for The Faith Experiment. You can also find The Faith Experiment on all good podcasting platforms, making it easy for you to keep up to date with The Faith Experiment. Well, I love hearing from you on The Faith Experiment, and I would love to hear from you today. Let me know where you're listening to The Faith Experiment right now from by texting me on 0488453, or you can email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au. Now, on this episode, I have a great book I want to give away called The Steps to Christ. In just 13 short chapters, millions of people around the world have become acquainted with Jesus through this little book, The Steps to Christ. And it has helped many, many more people, including those who have already walked with Jesus for many, many years, to help to know Him better. You'll read about His love for you, what repentance is, how to grow your faith, and how to be assured of your acceptance by God, and a bunch of other fantastic topics. So stick around to get today's code word during the show. You'll need to text the code word to 0488845311. So save this number in your phone right now, 0488845311, and wait for that code word. On the last episode, 5,000 Churches, I left you with that scene that I was on a quest to discover a church that matched the teachings of Jesus. You see, after being compelled by the teachings of these ancient manuscripts regarding the calling out or the church, I found that not only did Jesus have a church, but he expects us to be connected with it. And as I shared on the last episode, I found that there are two main reasons why a follower of Jesus must connect with his church. The first was for fellowship. Human beings always journey better together than alone. And the church is to be a source of fellowship and encouragement along this spiritual pilgrimage, which is life. And the second reason is for mission. The church is made up of people from all walks of life bringing various backgrounds and experiences and gifts and talents. And the Bible compares the church to a body and each of the members as various parts of that body. And in the same way that not everyone is a head or a foot or a hand, everyone, a part of the church, has their place where they can use their gift that only they have to fulfill the role that only they can fulfill. You see, Jesus established his church for the purpose of accomplishing the most ambitious mission this world has ever seen. Jesus expects that his church will carry the message of the eternal gospel or the good news to every nation, to every tribe, to every people group in every language. And as I said on the last episode, no one, 
I mean, nobody, no king, no kingdom, no organization, no family, no one has ever been able to communicate a single message to every person on the planet in a single generation. And yet this is the mission of Jesus' church. And to be a follower of Jesus is to embrace this mission and to do what we must to work together as a single unified body in order to fulfill the purpose or the destiny as God's church. Now, as I did a quick search online to find out how many Christian churches there were, I found to my shock that there were, in 2002, approximately 5,000 different Christian denominations in the world, all claiming belief in the same religious text, the Bible, all claiming to believe in God, and all claiming to believe in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and yes, all claiming to be the true church of Jesus. Now, it doesn't take a genius to work out that if you have 5,000 plus denominations all claiming to be Jesus' church, and then on the other side you have Jesus teaching that he started a church, a single church, it doesn't take a genius to work out that we have a slight problem for anybody looking to join Jesus' church. And to be honest, it's issues like this that I am, along with many other people, had the thought that crosses our mind, which is, man, why bother with any of this? I don't want to deal with all of this. They can't all be right churches. And who's to say that any of them are right? I really just didn't want to deal with all of these issues of religion. And so it's much easier to leave them all to themselves and just worship your God from the comfort of your own home. But each time this thought came to mind, I was reminded of the reason why Jesus established his church and why he was calling not just me, but all of his followers to join. So with some reluctance, I came up with a plan of attack, a plan on how to explore this problem. Step one, I'd create a matrix, which is basically a great big grid on a sheet of paper. Along the top of the grid, I would list the various denominations. And then down the left-hand side, I would list all the various beliefs of all the churches. And against each church, I would give a tick or a cross depending if I found support for the teaching. Based on my own study of the Bible, using my King James Bible and my Strongest Strongs Bible Concordance. And so, I went to the internet and I found the various statements of faith, or creeds of the various families of Christian denominations. I was able to find statements of faith for the Baptist Church, the Uniting Church, the Methodist Church, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Reformed Church, the Pentecostals, the Lutherans, the Seventh-day Baptists, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the True Church of God, and the Church of Christ. And so, as I sat there at my kitchen table, night after night, week after week, with hundreds of sheets of printed paper of all of these statements of faith and these creeds from various denominations, I started to explore what each denomination believed, and I examined closely the evidence for each of their claims. Well, it's time to take a short break now, but when we come back, I will continue with my search for a church. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. 
You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 04888-45311. That's 04888-45311. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns, all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king. Through all eternity Crown Him the Lord of love Behold His hands and sigh Rich wounds yet visible above
This is The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Listen live or listen later. Get the Faith FM app from your app store today. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Robbie Bergen, and this is episode 13 of The Faith Experiment. I'm calling this episode... Finding a Church. And coming up on today's show is the code word for this amazing book, The Steps to Christ. You're not going to want to miss it, so stick around for the code word. Before the break, I was sharing with you how I had started examining each of these families of denominations. Now, let me just insert a footnote here. What I'm sharing now is not meant to upset or offend you or anyone else for that matter. What I'm sharing now is just my personal journey as it unfolded, back almost 18 years ago now. And I can understand how describing this process that I undertook, some might be quick to get upset with me and my assessment of these various denominations. And I get that, but I want you to keep in mind that as I was journeying through this process, It was with a very blank slate. I didn't come to this process with an agenda or a bias. I just wanted the facts. And as we say in the problem-solving world, the facts never care about your feelings. So as I share my discoveries, please remember, I'm not trying to make anyone feel uncomfortable or upset. I'm just sharing with you the journey in which this experiment with faith took me. And so I decided to start with what I thought was the oldest of all these denominations, the Roman Catholic Church. After all, the popes of Rome claimed to be the successor of Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples. Now, I found that with the Roman Catholic Church, you can find their teachings are explained in a book called The Catechism. And to be honest, they've done a very good job at summarizing what they believe. It's a very effective book. It's easy to read and to understand what the Roman Catholic Church teaches and believes on pretty much any of their points of doctrine. And as I went through the book, as you might expect, there were a good number of beliefs that right off the bat I found good biblical evidence for as a belief. These things included like that the Bible is the truths of God recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus came into this world to make an atonement for our sins. And I was getting very excited when I opened up the Catechism to page 26 and I found this statement. It says, She, referring to the church, teaches all the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And I thought, wow, this church, the the Church of Rome, claims to teach all the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Not some, but all. And so, as I started to dig deeper and deeper into the teachings of the Roman Church, I started to get a little bit nervous, a little bit unsettled. For example, I read statements like this. On page 18, it says, Faith alone will not save man. Now, when I read the Bible, especially in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8, it says this. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourself, because it is a gift of God. And this seemed to directly contradict the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And then in John, chapter 3, verse 16, 
I read this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It seemed very clear to me that the Bible taught that we're saved by believing in the gift of salvation, not by works. So how could it be that a belief of the church could be so different to the plain teachings of the Bible? And then as I continued reading the Catechism, I found on page 13 this statement. It says, God punishes the wicked with his enmity during this life and co-signs them to the torments of hell and death. And when you look for the explanation of what hell is in the Catechism, it says that hell is the state of never-ending torments. Now, this was quite shocking for me, to be honest, because, you see, as I explored this concept of punishing the wicked and hell being a place of never-ending torment, I found, at least in exploring the ancient Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, that this just simply was not true. For example, consider this passage from the Old Testament Hebrew manuscript of Jeremiah. In chapter 18, verse 31, God is speaking, and he says this. He says, Cast away from you all of your transgressions which you have committed, and give yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. You see, God doesn't punish the wicked. He pleads with them, according to the Bible. Notice this passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, where Peter, who is the so-called first pope, look what he says. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God is trying to save people, not to punish them. And then in regards to this place called hell, the Catechism states on page 13 that hell is the state of never-ending torment. And yet, when you compare the teachings of the Bible, you find something entirely different. For example, Peter continues in the same passage talking about hell. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in them will be burnt up. Did you notice that? Yes, things will pass away and melt with fervent heat. They will burn up. Now, when you burn something up, I've lived through enough bushfire seasons here in Australia to know that when a bushfire comes through and it burns the bush up, it does just that. It burns it up. The fire goes out once the job is done. And that's exactly the image we get from this teaching of Peter. We also find the same picture in the Hebrew manuscript of Malachi in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up. There it is again burn them up. And it continues, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave neither root nor branch. Now, if there's not a root nor a branch left, then what's left to burn? Nothing. 
it continues in the same passage and says, You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this. Now, if we're going to trample the ashes under the soles of our feet, then you can be pretty assured that there's not going to be a fire that is tormenting the lost for a never, ever ending period of time. It just simply isn't there biblically. Now, there's no question that there is a thing called the lake of fire and there is a thing called hell. But it's not the same way that this catechism is describing it. Now, I want to reiterate that I was not looking to point fingers at a denomination with this exercise. I was looking for a church that taught Jesus' teachings, that followed his teachings, that existed to fulfill his mission. That's what I was looking for. And look, I have some very good Catholic friends, Roman Catholic friends today, all of these years later, and, and they're good people. But 18 years ago, as I was comparing the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, as revealed in the Catechism, as I compared that with the teachings of the Bible, the gaps seemed to be getting wider and wider. On one side, you had these very distinct teachings of the Bible, and on the other side, you had very different teachings on the exact same themes in the Roman Catechism. But that wasn't the last shock that I got. As I continued studying the Catechism, I found on page 38 that the Catechism taught that there are ten commandments. But as it lists them, there's only ten of them, and as it lists them, it was very noticeable that the Ten Commandments found in the Roman Catholic Catechism were very different to the Ten Commandments found in the Bible. You see, the first two commandments, they're identical between the Catechism and the Bible. But the third commandment in the Bible says that you shouldn't worship idols. In fact, it commands us not to worship idols. But in the Catechism, that commandment is completely missing. And the third commandment in the Catechism says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, in the Bible, that's the fourth commandment, not the third commandment. And so the Catechism removes that commandment completely and then shuffles the fourth down to the third. And from there, the two commandments are the same, the two lists of commandments in the Catechism and in the Bible. They are the same, but they're out of order by one because of the missing third commandment in the Catechism. But when you get down to number 9 and number 10 in the Catechism, they're both talking about thou shalt not covet. It just divides it into one's not to covet your neighbor's wife and the other one's not to covet anything else. But in the Bible, this coveting is one commandment and it's the 10th commandment. And I guess that at some point the church decided to split the 10th commandment from the Bible into two so that you would still have... Ten Commandments, because it would be kind of weird to say you have Ten Commandments and only have nine, right? So that makes sense, I guess, on a level. But I thought to myself, how odd is this, that the only part in the Bible that's said to be written by the very finger of God is the exact part that the Roman Catholic Church has changed. Now, it turns out that the commandment that was taken out, the one about don't bow down yourself to idols, well... That was and is kind of a bit of a problem for the church because if you've ever visited a Roman Catholic church, and I've visited uh, many of them over the years, you'll find that they are normally always filled with what is called uh, graven images, which the faithful, 
often walk by and bow down and touch or kiss the hands or the feet. Now, to be fair, my Catholic friends tell me that they're not worshipping the idols, but they're paying respect to them. But look, however you look at it, the commandment has been removed from the Ten Commandments, at least in the Roman Catholic Catechism. Now, the next thing that was striking while reading this commandment was the significant truncation of what is the fourth commandment in the Bible and is the new third commandment in the Catechism, the commandment relating to this Sabbath. I found that the word Sabbath is a Hebrew word which literally means rest. And in the Bible, the fourth commandment states that every follower of God has the seventh day of the week as a holy rest day. And it specifically says that you aren't supposed to work on this day. It's your day off. And not just you, but anybody in your home, in your household. And this time of the seventh day is a time to be spent in communion with God. Now, in the manuscript of Ezekiel, it says this in chapter 20, verse 12. It says, I also gave them, this is God speaking, my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. You see, the Sabbath is meant to be a sign of who is God's and who acknowledges God. And in verse 20 of the same chapter, it says, Keep my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. This Sabbath thing, as I was discovering, is a pretty big deal to God. It's such a big deal that he calls it his Sabbath. And in the Ten Commandments, it calls the seventh-day Sabbath the Sabbath of the Lord your God. This rest is not our rest, but it's his. And he gives it to us to rest on as a sign that we are his and he is ours. Now, in the Bible, the fourth commandment specifically says that the Sabbath day or the rest day is the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. But what shocked me was when I read page 49 of the Catechism, it specifically says this. It's written in a question and answer format. It says this. It says, question, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church in the Council of Laodicea in 336 AD transferred the holiness from Saturday to Sunday. Question, why did the Catholic Church substitute Sunday for Saturday? Answer, the Catholic Church substituted Sunday for Saturday because Christ rose from the dead on Sunday and the Holy Ghost descended upon the disciples on Sunday. Question, by what authority did the Church substitute Sunday for Saturday? Answer, the Church substituted Sunday for Saturday by the plentitude of that divine power Jesus Christ bestowed upon her. Now, I was absolutely astounded. Right there in black and white, the Roman church claims that it has the power to change God's commandments, and it decided to do that because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. Now, that's true. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, but he also rested on Saturday in the grave. 
In fact, notice what was Jesus' custom. This is what it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. It was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day or the seventh day of the week. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, Jesus himself says, Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Here, Jesus is calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath day, which means that the Lord's day is in fact the Sabbath day or the seventh day. Now, I found a number of other teachings that I just could not find biblical support for in the Roman Catholic Church's catechism. There are things like, The Eucharist, where a priest has the power to create the creator in the form of a wafer. And then there was penance, where I must do something or give something in order to be forgiven. When the Bible was clear that if I confess my sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive me of those sins. And then there was this teaching about purgatory, a place which doesn't exist in Scripture anywhere. And the list kept going on and on. Now, as I tried to understand, how could a church teach such contradictions to the Bible? As I tried to see if there was something I was missing, something that I didn't understand, it was then that I came to see that the Roman Catholic Church holds to the belief that church tradition and the teachings of the popes and the agreements of councils, church councils, are equal to one another. For example, it was the Council of Laodicea in AD 364 that decreed that the Sabbath is to be changed from Saturday to Sunday. That vote of the council now supersedes the teachings of the Bible in terms of which day is the Sabbath. And it was at the Second Council of Lyon in 1274 that the Catholic Church defined for the first time its teaching on purgatory. Now for me, as I examined these teachings, I came to this conclusion that this church, the Roman Catholic Church, as big as it was, and as old as it was, and as nice as the people might be, it did not teach the teachings of Jesus in its entirety. In fact, what I had discovered was that the teachings of the church actually contradicted some of the plainest teachings of Jesus. Well, it's time to take a short break again, but when we come back, I'll continue with my story of finding a church. And don't forget to stick around to get today's code word for the book, The Steps to Christ. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. The Faith Experiment is made possible because of people like you. If you enjoy what we are doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website at faithfm.com.au slash donate. The world waits for a miracle. The heart 
heart longs for a little bit of hope Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel A child prays for peace on earth And she's calling now from a sea of hurt Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel And can you hear the angels singing glory to the light of the world? Glory, the light of the world is Drought breaks with the tears of a mother The baby's cry is the sound of love Come down, come down, Emmanuel Oh, he is the song for the suffering He is Messiah, the Prince of Peace has come
You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is episode 13 of The Faith Experiment. I'm calling this episode Finding a Church. Now, coming up is today's code word for this amazing book, The Steps to Christ. Now, before the break, I was sharing with you how I had started exploring these various Christian denominations, and I was examining their teachings and comparing them with the Bible. I was carefully checking context and looking for what the whole Bible had to say on these various topics in order to try and understand and have a complete picture on the subjects that I was exploring. Now, before the break, I was sharing with you how I had gone through the Roman Catholic Church's catechism. And how even though there were a few things that I found I held in common as beliefs, the vast majority of their teachings I just could not find biblical support for. And in fact, most times what they taught was actually completely opposite to what the Bible taught on the exact same topics. And after searching, I found that the explanation for this was that the Roman Catholic Church holds to church tradition and church councils as being equal in authority to that of the teachings of the Bible. And this is why when a pope or a council makes a change to the biblical teachings, this change is accepted as if God had reached down from the heavens with a whiteout and erased the parts of the Bible and rewrote it. It's pretty much that simple. And as I said before the break, as much as I have some great Catholic friends and as old and as big as the church might be, it was just way too different to the plain teachings of these ancient manuscripts for me to accept it. After all, I had already been through the process of establishing that these manuscripts were from God because of the internal claims which were testable and verifiable. How could that now just be said to be changed because some mortals like a a pope or a member of a church council, how could that now just be changed? How can I test their claim to having power from God to change these manuscripts? I mean, this would put me back into the same realm as comparing the changes to the texts of the Vedas from Hinduism or the works of Buddha or of the Quran, where there's just no way to test that claim. And so I moved on to the next denomination on my list, the Anglicans or the Church of England. I started to examine the Westminster Confession of Faith. And like the Roman Catholics, I found that the Anglicans held to many beliefs that I too found biblical support for. Things like the Bible is the inspired word of God. There is a Godhead of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That God created this world with purpose and that God gave us free will. And Unlike the Roman Catholic Church, I found that the Anglicans held to the belief that we are saved by faith and that we are adopted into God's family through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. And that although we are empowered to walk in a new life, our works are not the source of our salvation, but the fruit of our salvation. But then something stood out in this Westminster Confession of Faith. In Article 28, which is entitled Baptism, it says that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. I was very intrigued by this. And so I began to study this theme of baptism as it's taught in the Bible. And I was excited. I found that Jesus was baptized by the prophet John 
right before Jesus began what is known as his public ministry. And this baptism was a symbol of death of the old life and a resurrection of a new life. Now, Jesus asked John to perform this baptism. John took Jesus and laid him under the water, symbolizing death. And then John lifted him up out of the water, symbolizing resurrection or a new life. Now, Jesus' disciples also baptized people. And the process was always the same. There needed to be a lot of water, and the person had to believe in the Messiah. And then they were placed under the water and brought up out of the water. As I studied this, I found this teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus says this. He says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And then there were teachings like this in John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. As I discovered this concept of baptism and the spiritual significance of following in the footsteps of Jesus, I knew that I wanted to follow in Jesus' example, and I knew that I too wanted to be baptized. I believed, and now I wanted to show that belief through this symbol of baptism. But then I noticed as I read on in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Article 28. It continues on by saying this, Dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. What? Did I read that right? Are they saying that you don't need to be baptized how Jesus was, just sprinkled with water? That can't be right. But then as I read on, it says, Not only those that who actually profess faith in the obedience under Jesus, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. This was crazy. This confession states that an infant, who I think we all can agree cannot claim and profess a belief in Jesus is to be sprinkled. I was shocked at how a group of people could just blatantly contradict the Bible teachings so easily. As I read on, I found more beliefs which, again, I couldn't find biblical support for. For example, the confession states in relation to death, it says, Our souls, which neither die nor sleep, have an immortal substance immediately returning them to God who gave them. Now, as I explored this teaching of death from the biblical text, it was pretty evident pretty quickly that this was completely opposite to the biblical teaching. For example, The confession states that our souls cannot die. And yet, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, it says, God speaking, God says, the soul who sins shall die. So clearly, souls die. And we're told that we have all sinned, and so if we've all sinned, then the soul that sins shall die. So to say that our souls don't die is completely opposite to the plain teachings of the Bible. And it's not just a prophet talking, it claims to be God talking. And then the second point that our soul is immortal disagrees completely with the plain teachings of Paul. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Speaking of God, God alone has immortality. If God is the only one with immortality, then how can we say that humans have immortality? And then Paul continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. He says, We get this immortality. We are given immortality, don't get me wrong, but we're given it at the sound of the trumpet, at the second coming. 
Meaning, if we're going to get the immortality at some point, and only God has immortality right now, then how can we believe that our souls are immortal and that they are incapable of death? Now, as I continued exploring the articles of faith as revealed in this confession, it explains the importance of keeping the Sabbath holy and honoring God by abstaining from working on it, as the Bible teaches. But then it also says next that the Sabbath was changed from the seventh day of the week, Saturday, to the first day of the week, Sunday. Now, having just examined the Roman Catholic Catechism, I knew that the Roman Catholic Church claimed responsibility for the change. And so I wondered why the Anglican Church, or the Church of England, also observed the first day of the week. And I came across this statement from Isaac Williams, one of the theologians of the Anglican Church, writes in a book called The Plain Sermons on the Catechism, on page 334. He states this, He says, and where are we told in the scriptures that we are to keep the first day at all? He's asking the question. And then he says, we are commanded to keep the seventh day, but we are nowhere commanded to keep the first day. The reason why we keep the first day of the week holy instead of the seventh is the same reason we observe many other things, not because of the Bible, but because the church has changed it. And the church he's referring to here is the Roman Catholic Church. And I found more than 15 other statements made by Anglican theologians who over the years have come out time and time again and said that the church keeping Sunday in place of Saturday is nothing more than a legacy inherited from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, as I continued with all the other various denominations, I kept finding the same problem. Although there were many things I found biblical support for, time and time again, I would find that these denominations would hold to teachings that came from the traditions which could be tracked back to Rome. And these teachings weren't just different to the biblical teachings, but in most cases they completely contradict the biblical teachings. For example, the Baptists, they believe that baptism should be by immersion, just like the Bible teaches, and that the decision for baptism can only be made by a believer, and that's exactly what the Bible teaches. So they correctly held to the biblical definition of the teaching of baptism. But then they also teach the non-biblical belief that hell is an eternal place of torment, even though, as I have already shared, the fires of hell eventually go out, and we are told we'll walk on the ashes, meaning that it cannot be an eternal place of torment. And then there was this issue with the seventh day Saturday Sabbath versus the first day Sunday worship. All of these denominations on my list practiced Sunday worship. And yet for each denomination, as I searched, I would find that their own theologians would openly state that there was no biblical evidence for the change of the Sabbath other than Rome's authority. For example, the Lutheran Church, although they also hold to the Roman teaching that Saturday was changed to Sunday in terms of the Sabbath. In a document called the Augsburg Confession of Faith, Article 28, Paragraph 9, this is what it says. It says, The observance of the Lord's Day as Sunday is found not on any command of God, but on the authority of the church. The Catholics allege that Sabbath changed into Sunday, and the Lord's Day, contrary to the Decalogue, as it appears, neither is there any example more boasted of than the changing of the Sabbath day. Great! they say, is the power and authority of the church since it dispensed with one of the Ten Commandments. Here is a denomination, the Lutherans, that practice one thing and yet their theologians say that the reason we're doing this is not because of the Bible but because of the Roman Catholic Church. And then there is the great D.L. Moody who wrote, The Sabbath was binding in Eden and it has been in force ever since. 
This fourth commandment begins with the word remember, showing that the Sabbath already existed when God wrote the law on the tables of stone at Sinai. How can men claim that this one commandment has been done away with when they will admit that the other nine are still binding? The more I dug, the more I found. Every one of these churches had embraced the teachings of Rome in some shape or form, or in varying degrees. But there were two common teachings that they all shared with Rome. This idea that the soul is immortal and the idea that Sunday is sacred or holy and it now replaces the seventh day of the fourth commandment. I mean, it didn't matter if it was the Uniting Church, the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church, the Salvation Army, the Lutheran, the Church of England, the Presbyterian Church, the Mormon Church, Jehovah's Witness Church, the Baptist or the Brethren. They all held to these two Roman teachings, that Sunday was the day of worship in place of the seventh-day Sabbath of the Bible, and that the soul doesn't die. And then, in my reading on this topic, I came across this statement in the Catholic Universe Bulletin, dated August 14, 1942. This is what it says. The Roman Catholic Church changed the observance of the Sabbath to Sunday by right of the divine infallible authority given to her by her founder, Jesus Christ. The Protestants claiming the Bible to be the only guide of faith has no warrant for observing Sunday. In this matter, the Seventh-day Adventist is the only consistent Protestant. According to the Roman Catholic Church, if you want to be a person who claims that the Bible is the only guide for faith, then Seventh-day Adventists are the only consistent Protestant. Absolutely incredible. Here was the Roman Catholic Church pointing people who wanted to follow the teachings of the Bible to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church because, according to the Roman Catholic Church, they're the only ones who follow the Bible as their only guide of faith. And then there was this statement from the St. Catherine Catholic Church. This was a newsletter article dated May 21, 1995. This is what it says. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. The day of the Lord was chosen not for any directions noted in the scriptures, but for the church's sense of its own power. The day of resurrection, the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, they came on the first day of the week. So this would be the new Sabbath. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority, should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Here it was again, the Roman Catholic Church suggesting that if you want the scriptures, if you want the Bible to be the sole authority in your life, you should logically become Seventh-day Adventists. So, as you can imagine, I turned my attention to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and what I found was absolutely remarkable. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has a document which they call the 27 Fundamentals of Belief. These are the 27 core teachings of Scripture that unite all of its members together as a church around the world. And as I went through them one by one, I was giving them check after check after check as I found biblical support and I agreed with their beliefs. 
For example, they believe both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament are the inspired word of God. They believe that there is one Godhead made up of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah. They believe in the six literal days of creation and that humanity was made with free will. And after the great fall in the Garden of Eden, they needed a Savior. And they believe that all of humanity is now involved in a great cosmic conflict between Christ and Satan regarding the character of God and his holy law. And I saw after studying the books of Job and Daniel and Revelation, it was clear that there was a cosmic story which transcends our time and our space. And the church also teaches that Jesus' perfect life and death and resurrection was to serve as an atonement for our sins and provide a way back to communion with the Godhead. They teach that after accepting by faith the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, that we are to abide in Christ by an indwelling power known as the Holy Spirit, which produces good works or fruit in our lives. The church teaches that the purpose of the church is to take the gospel message to the entire world to prepare a people for the soon return of Jesus' second coming. They literally base their mission statement on a passage of scripture from Revelation 14, known as the three angels' messages, where it says this, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell upon the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of waters. The Seventh-day Adventist Church also teaches that as a person believes in the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf, they are to follow his example and to be baptized by immersion, exactly as the Bible teaches. They also teach that God's law, his Ten Commandments, are a transcript of God's character. And just as God's character cannot change, neither can his law change. The church teaches that the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. It's Saturday. And just as the Bible teaches, from the beginning to the end, it is a day of rest to spend in community and with fellowship with Christians and with God. And the church is so convinced of the importance of the Sabbath that it is enshrined in the very name, Seventh Day. Adventist, which leads me to the word Adventist. This word means looking for the Advent, the second coming of Jesus. Like the Bible states, Jesus will return again. Right now, he's ministering in a heavenly sanctuary on behalf of you and me, but he's promised he will come again. And the church also believes that death is a sleep, that our bodies return to the dust, just as God taught in the opening passages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And there we wait with both the righteous and the wicked until the great resurrection day when we shall receive immortality exactly as Paul taught. And finally, the church teaches that there will be an end of sin and suffering and there will be what the Bible calls an end in a lake of fire. But it exists for a time and for a purpose. And it's not a place of eternal suffering or torment for the wicked for all of eternity. And as these coals go out and they become ashes under our feet, the church teaches, as the Bible does, that God will do a new thing. As he states in Revelation chapter 21, he will create a new heaven and a new earth. As I examine each and every teaching, 
each belief this church held to be truth. I found time and time again I was in perfect agreement with it, and on my matrix I had nothing but check marks for the Seventh Day Adventist Church. And while I want to emphasize that I'm not discrediting the other denominations or the people who make them up, in this quest I was looking for a church that held to the simple and plain teachings of Jesus as found in the Bible and the Bible alone. And although all the denominations contain some biblical truths, I found that I could prove and support every one of the beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it was there at my kitchen table that I determined to join the members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it was about 3 months later that I met a Seventh-day Adventist member, a young man who was at the time in his 30s. And looking back now, I can say he deeply impacted my spiritual journey. And he gave me some tools that have shaped who and what I am in this faith experiment. Next time on the faith experiment, I'll continue to take you on my personal faith experiment and how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. And what happened after I connected with the Seventh-day Adventist Church? You see, my life literally turned upside down so quickly that before I knew it, nothing in my life was the same. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, today I have this amazing book called Steps to Christ, which I'm giving away. It's just 13 short chapters that millions around the world have become acquainted with Jesus through. This little book has helped many, many people, including those who have already walked with Jesus for years, to help them to know him better. When you read this book, you're going to find out more about the depth of his love, what repentance is, how to grow your faith, how to be assured of your acceptance with God, and a bunch of other fantastic topics. So, if you'd like to get this book for yourself or for a friend, all you need to do is to text this code word to 04888845311. The code word is STEPS, S-T-E-P-S. Text the code word STEPS, S-T-E-P-S, to 04888845311. So text the code word STEPS to 04888 Four five three double one, and the Faith FM bot will ask you for some details, and we'll send that book out to you. Now, just so you're aware, some of you have messaged me and told me that you still haven't received some of your books. Well, this is due to COVID. Everything in our system has been put in. You'll get the books as soon as the shipments and postal services, which are super slow, catch up to the backlog. So hang in there. It will come, hopefully not too much longer. Well, that's all we have time for now. I'll catch you next week at the same time right here on Faith FM for the next episode of The Faith Experiment. I'll see you then. You have been listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Connect with us via text message on 04888 453 That's 0488 453 or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au and let us know what you thought of this episode.